Hi, I'm Nakia Cheney from the Emoji Community. Hi, I'm Donna from the Emoji Community. Hi, it's Ariba from the Emoji Community. And thank you for listening to the Amplified Podcast. Larice Diamond is our guest. Larice, are you ready? I'm going to go ahead and introduce Larice over here. She is a dual San Diego State University alumni. Um, she was a practical nurse for 13 years, and then she went back um, to school. She has um, she served as executive director of the Linguistic Communication Development Center, which is a nonprofit organization to help um, students learn cultural communication competence. Um, currently, she attends Claremont Graduate University, getting her PhD in cultural studies, where she explores topics that investigate rhetorical functions with ideological, social, and cultural contexts. Um, so she's a really, really, really good friend of mine. Uh, she is a scholar, um, and she's very knowledgeable on this subject, and I thought it'd be fun if we kind of, I know we're doing fun stuff for Porch Talks too, but it's also nice to see African-Americans um, in positions, uh, in scholarly positions, who are studying some of this stuff and bringing some of this awareness, you know, to their communities, whatever their communities are, because I don't think we get this, right? We don't really get this all the time. We don't really get to see this portrayed a lot. So I thought it'd be really fun if she comes and she visits us. So go for it, Reese. You can start your presentation. Go for it. Thank you, Nakia, <laughs> and thank you for having me here today and, and engaging this conversation on intersectional identity, and then we'll discuss a little bit about what is the theory of intersectionality and why does it matter? Like, I was, I was spending some time thinking about the relevance of intersectionality, and um, I wondered, have you ever felt like you were being pulled in many, many different directions? Um, I remember feeling that way a lot before I, I finally found how all of my identities intersect. But before I recognized that that pull, that, oh, I, I want to do this, I want to do that. Oh, these people want me to do this. Oh, I need to go here. But I, but my mom wants me to do that. That was my identities competing with each other inside of me. So that's how I kind of want to frame it. We have these, these identities and sometimes they don't converge. Sometimes they're vastly different. And then inside of us, we have these pulls, this kind of tension to do things. And sometimes we don't want to do them. <laughs> so my name is Reese Diamond, call me Reese. And I just want to, us to think about who we are um, and how we got to be where we are. And then kind of who do we want to become and in order to talk about intersectionality, I first want to set the stage by 
discussing our intersectional identities. And when I think of intersections, I think of two lines that meet at a specific point, that kind of crossroad, um, the intersection where we meet ourselves and also at intersections we meet other people. And so when we're talking about our intersectional identity, we're talking about that point in the road where many different lines come together to meet at a specific point. And that point is us. I also think of intersectionality like a four-way stop sign. So when I, when I expand my own intersectional identity in consideration of how those identities connect with other people who have or carry those same identities, we kind of meet at this four-way stop sign. And the importance of that meeting is why intersectionality is important to understand at this point in history. It's gonna help us build community. It's going to help us be able to understand ourselves better. And it's going to help us challenge and dismantle oppressive systems like white supremacy and anti-Black racism. And we're all gonna to live together in harmony someday. So, I recognize two identities right now. We have our, bio, our biological identity or biographical, and then we have our social identity. So when I'm talking about the biographical identity, that's the one we were born with. And we were, we were born, we popped out and the doctors assigned us a sex, male or female. And they told us that we were of a specific race. So they racialized us into these categories. Um, for instance, you know, we have black, white, Latinx. Social identity, however, is the one that develops over time. We mature into our social identities. We become, we start to recognize our sexuality, our gender, our abilities, our mental, mental health statuses. We get jobs, we get married, we become mothers or fathers or caregivers. We might join the armed services and become a veteran. Later, if we're lucky, we'll become grandmothers and grandfathers. There's so many identities that we can become. Um, I recognize myself as a Congolese, Minkwin, Irish, Indigenous American who is 50 six years old, I think, uh, uh, queer, Black, American. I am a grandmother, a student, an executive director, a musician, a singer. I am a rhetorician, um, a mother, a grandmother, an aunt, an uncle. So all of these different identities come into form who I am.
Um, one specific identity is as someone with low vision, um, which puts me in a category they want to term, they want to term disability, but I put it in the category called ability. Um, people who have varying abilities, they fall into these different identities. And so when we start to consider the ways that we build up all these identities over time, we can start to understand who we are. We can start to build community with people who share those identities. And we can start to get some focus on who, who we want to become. So understanding how those intersections come together is vital for understanding yourself and connecting to community so that you can have a sense of belonging somewhere. And understanding your identity, as I said, is critical for addressing and dismantling systemic oppression. Um, are there any questions so far before I go in to what is intersectionality? Well, you know, Reese, one of the things um, that I'd like us to do is I was hoping we could have a conversation, you know, where we kind of go back and forth, not just asking questions, but I know your personal story is just really, really fascinating. So I'm not sure if you're willing to share that, like your own personal journey and your personal story. How did you get where you are? Um, because you're, this is a way for the students to really begin to see um, Black women in these unique positions in our societies, right? I think it's really important to see that. Are you comfortable sharing that? Well, I'm sure. <laughs> Definitely comfortable sharing that and, and thinking about the ways that internet intersectionality as the way that power plays into who we become and how we are treated, I think is, is an important is an important aspect of my story. So Let's see where to start. Hmm. Um, let's start as um, a young a young black woman who was in high school, getting out, getting ready to graduate. Um, that yeah, that last year of high school for me was very problematic. Um, number one, I was facing discrimination and the theater department and the dance department because I went to a school that was mostly white. And as the only black girl in the dance and theater programs, band to band, <laughs> um, I didn't realize what was going on, but behind the closed doors where students were not allowed to go. I later found out that one of the problems with my advancing in those departments and getting scholarships for college was because I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to fully express my talents. I was kind of minimized because I couldn't have any starring roles. 
I could not be the romantic lead in a play with a white male. And the dance program had difficulties following my dance moves, if you can imagine. <laughs> uh, it's true that the, the white girls had, they had never danced in, the, in my style as a, as a black girl. And so the choreography never meshed up. I never got this, the starring romantic role. They finally got me a role to play a narrator who narrated the entire play and, and, and did that. But it, the pressure of being the only black person in the room, it, it's heavy. It's heavy because it just kind of doesn't let, it didn't let me grow. So when it was time to graduate, I felt kind of lonely. I wanted to go to college, but I, I didn't have any applications in. So I moved from San Diego to Denver, Colorado, where I just started this journey to find myself. And I eventually began to recognize my, my sexuality and my preference, my sexual preference. And that put me into a whole nother identity category. So first I was just a black girl and now I'm a queer black girl and I still don't have any direction. I still feel pulled to do something, to move around, to find myself. And luckily I met a friend who did have direction and encouraged me to go to nursing school. So while I'm thinking about nursing school, I run into a man. And the intersection of Christianity comes in, religion. So here I am. I believe I'm a queer girl, but I also believe in the Bible and I'm supposed to get married. So then we have those tensions of identity. I'm supposed to marry a man and have babies. And so to honor my Christianity, my Christian identity, I got married and the marriage lasted nine months. And guess what happened in that nine months? <laughs> and so after the baby was born, um, I caught my husband um, in bed with another woman, which was my perfect excuse to leave because I was not happy. Uh, took the baby, left and ended up moving in with my friend who wanted me to go to nursing school. And together we formed a family. So it was her, me, my son, and we were a non-traditional family with traditional values. Um, I got a divorce, went to nursing school, and I felt unfulfilled but I also felt like I was doing something worthwhile. So even though I still wanted to go to college, I was nursing and I was caring for people and that made me feel like I had a good purpose in the world. And I did that for a while um, until I got into a car accident. I drove off a bridge and 
Broke my back, broke my neck. I should have been paralyzed. Um, had to take off work. And as like a year of rehab, physical, physical therapy, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't want to share that part. Sorry, can't share everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was thinking of the coma. <laughs> like I, you don't have to go deep because you are my friends. So I know what you're talking about. So no, you don't have to share all that. But yeah, but the coma, <laughs> coma Reese, right? Like okay. Yeah. Are you so? I got to be. Uh, I'll talk about the coma because that's coming up. So I'm in the rehab program. And I'm like, you know, I don't, I want to go back to school. I don't want to go back to nursing. So I decide to pack up. By now, my son is grown. He's out of the house. So I have the empty nest syndrome. And I'm like, I'm free, though. I don't have anything holding me here. And I moved back to San Diego. And I'm plan to go to school and get my degree. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to start a new chapter. And so when you enter a new state, um, the first thing you want to do if you want to go to, to college is get established as a resident. And that takes a year. So during that time, I moved in with um, a senior citizen and him and I took care of each other. Uh, one day, I'm driving around uh, the city on the highway with a friend and I almost crashed in into a sign because I couldn't read it. I was trying to read the highway sign. Do I get off here? And we almost wrecked. I went to the eye doctor to get my eyes checked. And that's when I found out that um, I'm legally blind. And so that was a whole nother rabbit hole. I'm like, wow, my dream is crushed. I can't go to school. I'm, I'm blind now. Uh, can't see. So I just sat around. I sat around the house crying and moping for about a year. Um, one day, because the house where I was living was in such disarray, but I couldn't really see it. I was tripping and falling over things in the house. And I tripped, hit my head, ended up in the hospital. And then my organs failed. I went into multiple organ failure. The only organ that was functioning was my heart. I was in dialysis. I was on the ventilator. I was on full life support. And physicians told my family that even if I regain consciousness, because by this time when my organs fail, you're, you're no longer conscious. Um, they said, if she comes out of the coma, she's going to be in a permanent vegetative state. Um, but we doubt that she will make it because, you know, we are not finding any brain function. Um, so please just, just pull the plug and save yourself some trouble. Thankfully, my son told them as long as her heart is beating on its own, leave her connected. Four months later, I started coming back. Um, I opened my eyes. I was in a bed in a nursing home and I was hooked up to a ventilator and I couldn't speak. 
but I could listen to everything that was going on around me. So now all of these different identities have just compounded on me. I'm just turning in to this person with all of these various intersecting identities. And now I'm in the hospital. I'm blind, I'm queer, I'm black, I'm queer Christian. I'm a nurse who's no longer a nurse. <laughs> and now I'm a patient who is coming back from a coma. So now I'm a miracle. <laughs> I am a medical miracle. So I'm like, okay, well, let's get out of this bed. So I worked to be able to stand up again. And uh, all I really wanted to do was make it to the bathroom by myself. That was my first goal. <laughs> I'll share that with you. I was so tired of everyone cleaning me up <laughs> in the bed. And so I just wanted to get up and go to the bathroom. And so that was my goal. And then before I left, I uh, told the nurse, before I leave here, I, I need you to know I'm here because I was depressed. Um, I'm legally blind and I wanted to go to school. That's why I moved here to California. And when I found out I couldn't do that, you know, it kind of took away my desire to live. I am so glad I had that conversation. It's so important to share with people what's going on. And so she told me, she said, I, that's no problem. We can send you to the San Diego Center for the Blind. They can teach you skills, give you technology and help you get back on your feet and able to go to school. I said, what, really? <laughs> I'll go, yes. So I right away, since I got out of the hospital, healed up my wounds, I went to the center and the rest is history. I graduated from the center, most likely to succeed because when I was there, I met people who like are totally blind and, and still living full and productive lives. One of my good, good friends I met at the center, she became totally blind after a routine abdominal surgery. She woke up and she couldn't see. Now this lady has two teenage sons and she wakes up in the hospital totally blind. I'm like, wow, I can't even imagine that. But there she was at the center learning how to live her life. And so I was like, if she could do it, I could do it. And um, so then I gained a new community, the blind community. So as someone who is low vision and blind, now I've gained another community. And I went to school, started at community college um, where I had been in and out of community college all, you know, ever since high school, right? I kept going back and then I'd go for a semester and then I, life would call me back. But this time I was determined because while I was in the coma, I realized that I only have a short time to live, okay? Playtime is over. <laughs> time to get serious about your life if, you wanna, if I wanna make a contribution to the world. And so I got serious about my life. I started planning and making goals and giving myself timeframes and, and um, stopped 
being pulled in multiple directions and focused on con like merging my identities into this one that you see before you today and working from there. So from community college, I transferred over to the university, got my BA in communication as I always wanted to. Then I got minors in sociology, interdisciplinary studies. And one thing about um, communication for me, which I think is the foundation of social evolution, we don't evolve as a society without communicating. Um, I was sad that the discipline didn't focus more on writing. They were more centered on human interaction and speaking. And so for me, writing is integral to communication and I love to write. And as a result of the coma, I had this kind of aphasia, this inability to access language and images in my head. And so I didn't, I didn't speak much at all in community college and, and at the university because I was having difficulty finding my words, but somehow I knew that being in the education setting was going to help trigger my brain. And I decided that one of the reasons I went to school in the beginning was just to give myself some cognitive rehabilitation to, to get my mind moving. And then when I transferred, I thought, well, gee, by the time my brain wakes up, um, I'll probably have a degree. <laughs> and so I'm just killing, I'm killing birds with stones out here, people. <laughs> you know, I remember that in your story, you say that going to school, um, doing this, getting that education is part of your recovery, right? And I, I really think that your story just shows a sense of resilience. Um, and I don't know if you if you feel like taking questions from, from anybody here about your story, about you or about how you see the world, because I think you're a very special person in that, you know, you were able to overcome all of those things and still get to this particular place in life. And this could be cultural, but I know you say community is, is important as well too. So any questions? Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Hi. Okay. So Rita and um, Ms. Louis <laughs> So thank you for sharing your story with us and your journey um, growing your social identities. Mm -hmm. My question is, in growing those identities and claiming some of them, where were some of your conflicts? Mm -hmm. Where did some oh. of your conflicts lie? Okay. Um, so I did, I mentioned the tension between Christianity and queerness. Mm -hmm. So that, that side of me that's attracted to all people, not just men per se, but whoever I find beautiful. It fell at odds with the notion of wives clinging unto your husbands. <laughs> and so those two tensions were there. Also down the line, when part of my journey at the San Diego Center for the Blind was getting comfortable with not being able to see well and feeling a sort of shame when it was called out, when it's called out, 
in a room or or even in a rest. My grandmother, for example, we were out to eat and I have these um, special special spectacles that I wear that have a, a microscopic lens. But in order to use it, I have to bring whatever it is I want to read like up here like this. And so when I'm in a restaurant, I'm like this to read the menu. So one of the first things that my dear sweet grandmother did <laughs> when we went out to eat together, we hadn't seen each other in a while, was when she saw me reading the menu, I happened to see her out of the corner of my eye, look at her friend and kind of whisper, loud whisper, see, see what she has to do in order to see like it was a crime or something. And it made me feel really ashamed that I was having to hold up the menu so close and, and look so odd in public. And so part of the experience of losing my eyesight involved getting used to, of coming to, to grips with my, my limitations and carrying, walking around with a white cane. So I have a white cane that identifies me as being blind or not able to see well, because there are so, I learned so many variations when it comes to vision. It's not just now you're blind, you can't see anything. There's just different stages and different um, perceptions. And so most of the time I can walk around without my white cane. But there are some instances where it's so important for people to know I can't see well. So if I go to a professional function, I bring out my cane so people know that I can't see them. Um, I'm trying to signal, I, I don't see, please come up to me. But I find that the cane can, can repel people as, as much as it can inform them that I can't see. Um, and when I travel abroad, it's a real, depending on what country I'm in, I have to consider if I will be targeted because I can't see well. There's lots of opportunistic criminal, criminals who are searching for Americans that they can plunder. So I have to also be wary of that. And when I am walking with my cane, I'm vulnerable to attack. And so there's another tension there between passing as a sighted person and then embracing my visual limitations. Mm, okay. Mm. I mean, I know that some of us, even though her example that she was giving right now is great, but some of us may be identifying as African-American or maybe even a Latino person who doesn't look the part, mm -hmm. right? And so now you're in that danger zone of, okay, if they find out that I, what is, you know, how is that gonna be for me? So some of people do sometimes travel that line um, 
is the cane, for example, but it's some folks that may not look on the surface as identifying as someone, a person of color, but they are. And then what challenges might that be? Like you might find yourself among folks that um, might not even like people of color, you know, and then you're there, but you know that you're a person of color. And then you're like, all of a sudden is, am I going to say something that's going to let the cat out of the bag? So those are some examples, I think, of intersection that might come up for some folks. Definitely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. You have a question? You have another question? So the first thing that comes to mind is, is Hell the Queen. Um, <laughs> I usually never wear mascara because I usually tend to cry it off. And I says, well, things will be a good thing. But I've been triggered by a lot of things that you said. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, have you ever experienced systemic racism within your own culture? Well, of course I have, because <laughs> we, have this, <laughs> we have this thing called colorism, where people who are darker skinned and lighter skinned have this tension between them that goes back, of course, to, to racism, white supremacy, and slavery, right? The light-skinned people were treated, if you can say better, than the darker skinned people who had to work in the fields and do the harder label. The light-skinned children were usually from the master and they were allowed to have a lighter load. And especially here in the States, we, we experience that colorism. And so when, when I think about my own experience with colorism and, and I, would, I wanna take it back to high school again, you know? So as the black child who was always attending the white schools, there, I mean, I was lucky if there were four other black people in my grade, um, it was lonely, but it also like, I learned habits of being white, of acting, I don't wanna say acting white, but that's what black people would say to me. My own culture would say, you're acting white. Well, I wasn't acting white. I was raised in a white culture. I can't repel the culture. <laughs> if I want to get along, I have to, you know, fit in. So, you know, I talked differently. Um, you couldn't tell that I was Black from the sound of my voice. Um, I did. I hung out with the white kids and I felt uncomfortable around Black kids. Unless you were hanging out with my people then I was uncomfortable, just like anyone else would be an outsider. And so when I had to step in to the room with Black people, I can feel uncomfortable there because I didn't fit in. Their ways of being were a little foreign to me. Luckily, I did have that connection with the church. You go to church and everyone tries to be loving and express that love. And that was the only space where I could really pick up on my culture and, 
and feel like I had a chance to fit in. Otherwise, as soon as I opened my mouth, Black people would just say, oh, she's not one of us. You're not mm-hmm. You know, you get. I grew up in Kansas, and we went to. I went to school here, elementary all the way to high school, and they would purposely not put other black kids in the classroom. They were all separated at the same school. That was a practice. They would do that. Um, I had the same thing at my school. And yeah. what is up with that? Well, like, why wouldn't they? You know, they would do. They would yeah. separate. They would separate the black children, mm-hmm. making sure that you know sometimes we didn't have the same recesses or the same lunch time. So it was. It wasn't until high school where it just you know they didn't have the room and space to do that anymore. To where I was able to connect with other students. Um, of color. So it was always hard. Something would happen outside of the world, like say a rapper would do something or there would be some kind of crime committed. And then I felt like I would always have to be the person in the room to talk about it and and, then humanize the person making the mistake. So it it wasn't until high school when we were all able to attend classes together and be together. So it was very lonely. And the only connection, of course, was my church um, and my family. We're from the Oakland area. So when I went back home, it was always like, you sound so right. And I always had to like prove my blackness. (laughs) So I was always that one that was like, okay, well then let's go, you know? You know, let's go, let's go for it and we'll see where you land, you know. So I was always defensive and then I was always alone when I was at home and I'd be so thirsty to go back home. Like it would be summertime and it's time to go and be, you know, at my grandma's house. We lived in the deep east. I mean, it was like my chance to really not be a white person for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And what I would call my black spirit. Um, it was definitely difficult to walk that fine line. Um, so as I grew older and got and had children of my own, I always made sure that we stay connected in our community to our folks and they didn't have to like travel or wait for us to be with family to be together. And also speaking up in school, it's like, um, you know, I want my kids to be able to sit at a table together. I want them to be in classrooms with other students of color. Yeah. I would have to push for those things. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you've got all these kids that are in the same grade, but they're all spread out amongst all the. So you're telling me that these four students, four to five students, couldn't find their way in one classroom. You know, it was always a thin line for me. So I definitely understand how it was to be living in a predominantly white area, speaking in such a way, and then going back or trying to be in the community and being rejected because you sound white or you act white. You know, and I was like, well, that's just where I am, you know, where I'm from. Yes. Yes, thank you for sharing that. 
you know? I had no idea they were purposefully separating us like that. Yeah, I've, I've had that experience. But you know, you know, Reese, there's something you said that was so interesting. And you said that you gained another community, right? You gained when when you went to the to the blind school. Um, you gained another community when you went to college. You gained another community, right? You know, when you went and did these things. And I think that that's something we can pull from from intersectionality as well too. Is that when you're at these intersections between these different identities, it can feel incredibly lonely. But that also gives you all of these different communities that you can enter and you can be a part of as well, too. Like, this is a community, you guys, right? You know, like, this is a community. I'm trying. <laughs> you know, like, I'm trying, right? But you can enter that even if it's like, okay, this is different or this is, this is foreign or the different identities you have, your sexuality, the church you're going to, your friends groups that you're with or something like that. And we're running out of time. We're going to kind of have to um, uh, wrap it up a little bit. But I'm just going to throw this out there. And you can totally say no. I know you have this a church background. Reese is a beautiful singer. A beautiful, beautiful, beautiful singer. So I'm just throwing that out there, Reese. I, I, you know, like you, you, you tell me what you're comfortable with. But um, you have blown me away with your songs. So just if you want that kind of community, we're here for you. We are here for you now. Just saying. But last words. Last words. Last words. Thank you, Nakia. Um, actually, I'm going to withhold the song because there's nothing joyous coming to me right now in the musical vein. I do want to, to thank you so much for letting me just come in and share today. Um, it's an honor to be here and to talk about those uncomfortable topics that we don't often get to, to speak with each other about in multicultural settings. Um, so one of the things that really guides my journey is the message of Dr. Martin Luther King, who fought for racial justice and whose voice has, I think, been diminished over the years. Uh, it's been institutionalized for certain, but part of being that child of the 60s was being raised with, with the voice of Dr. King in my head, the voice of Malcolm X, and the voice of all of the members of the, the, Black, Parth the Black Panther Party, all of those movements around race. Um, and then my experience, of course, as, as the sole and lonely Black child in the room, um, they fostered a multicultural perspective. And so, that's what I advocate for. I advocate for spaces where we can all come together um, and stop the segregation, the unnecessary segregation that keeps us divided. It's, they purposefully don't want us together. And we should definitely fight against that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So do you guys want to say any last words or anything? We're going to kind of conclude. So we're going to shine. What's the my question? Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to add that um, 
in regards to the separation and they didn't want us together. I remember being in the fourth grade and all my friends were Caucasians because I lived on the north side of town in the Central Valley. And um, one of my teachers, I, I, I remember her name perfectly to this day. And I've even written long stories about her. Her name was Miss Catchbolian. She was an Italian teacher. And she would call my mother to tell her that she didn't want my friend and I both hanging out because Hope was bad news for me. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to say to this very day, Hope is Portuguese. She's one of my best friends. And we see each other any chance we get when I go to the Central Valley. And I'd also like to say, I, I, can, I appreciate you saying by you that the, the Caucasian culture is part of who you are. And that Caucasian culture is part of who I am. I went and lived in Reno, Nevada, and I was able to be one of their top salesmen because um, I could change my voice. And I loved doing it. And they would ask me in different regions what nationality I was. And I couldn't wait to tell them that I was black because they told me, they said, oh, you know what I'm black? <laughs> you, oh, my God with you with this, but I appreciate it, and I'm grateful where I come from, and I really appreciate my Cabrillo College community because this is part of my family. Everyone in this room is part of my family, and even if I just met you, I mean, this young lady pulled up a chair for me when I first walked in. I mean, it's good to demonstrate who you are, and I appreciate that, and I really thank you for the words that you've shared with me today and us in the room. Take all that goodness. <laughs> all right everybody i have to go to class now <laughs> all right thank you peace bye thanks it's been a pleasure bye thank you for tuning in to amplify a podcast series for historically unheard cabrillo students you can join us by emailing reina chalice at r-a-c-h-e-l-i-s at cabrillo.edu or me, Nikia Cheney at N-I-C-H-A-N-E-Y at cabrillo.edu or even texting 951-254-3651 or visiting our website at podcastforcabrillo.wordpress.com. And amplify your own voice too.